You're listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. I'm your host, Trish Glose, and I'm coming at you from my kitchen. On today's menu, it's Todd Shulkin. He's the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation. I learned so much about this incredible organization. It started in 1995 really as a way to expand Julia Child's impact as a teacher and a mentor that was really important to her. Through grants, it really does continue her legacy, educating and encouraging others to live well through the joys of cooking, eating, and drinking well. We also chatted a little bit about the podcast that uh, Todd hosts, and he always asks his guests about their Julia moment. So of course I had to ask him his Julia moment, and he'll share that. And uh, we learned about his life as a talent agent in Hollywood, pretty fascinating, and his journey to the foundation. Here's Todd Shulkin. Todd Shulkin, thank you for being here today, joining from London, right? That's right. It's a pleasure to join you. Okay. You are the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation, among so many other things. Um, also a former talent agent. Is that correct? I am. Uh, yes, I was a talent agent, uh, but I still, in addition to what I do for the foundation, um, I'm still a literary manager, which is very similar. And so I continue to work with writers and directors. Um, originally, I was a film agent. That's how I trained. Um but um, yeah, so I, I wear a lot of hats and even the work with the foundation, it, it, often I'm wearing this two hats at the same time, I think you could say. Yeah, I know how that goes for sure. Uh, <laughs> fascinating, uh, fascinating career. I am really excited to talk to you about that. But first, um, where are you from originally, Todd? Oh, I find that question challenging because I'm not from anywhere originally. And I'll try to explain why concisely. Okay. I'm a native Californian raised in the Midwest by New Yorkers. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> so, but you, I mean, would you, what, is there a place that you would consider home? Well, I would say Kansas city is my hometown because that's where I was raised from the time I was four until I went off to college and my family lived there for a really long time. And, you know, I feel roots there, but there's, you know, a certain difference in that. My parents aren't from there. They didn't stay. I don't have any family members there anymore. And my parents were very much New Yorkers, um, but with this connection to California. And then they've gone back to California. I was born in the Bay Area. And then I lived in California for two different stints for a total of at least 15 years. So in some ways, as an adult, I kind of consider Los Angeles home. Okay. Yeah, I get that. And for school, I mean, where did you go to school then, I guess? those er That early childhood school time. Well, I went to Montessori in the Bay Area, and then I went to primary school and secondary school at a private school in Kansas City, Okay, um, which was originally called the Pembroke Country Day School. Um, and I meant, it's now called Pembroke Hill. It merged with a girls' school, but it's, part, it's still part of this Country Day um, school tradition and ethos that there are Country Day schools in you know, more than a dozen cities in the, in the U.S. Okay. So New Yorker parents, um, I mean, yes. okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like to, I mean, define that for me. What does it mean just to the nth degree? Well, my parents, my parents are third generation New Yorkers who were born and raised there. And so they mm. very, my mother so like people, my parents haven't moved to New York for more than 50 years. And people still be like, are you from New York? My mom still has an accent, you know, I don't think she really likes this, but I'm like, you know, she sounds just like Donald Trump. He grew up a town next to her. Stop. So 
<laughs> yeah, I used to say when Donald Trump would start ranting, he would sound like my old Jewish aunts, who, who, because it's the same way of talking and communicating. Um, my mom doesn't rant, but she still says things like stereo and, you know, pronounces words funny. Mm-hmm. But then she also uses certain Midwestern pronunciations because she lived there for so long. Was food important for, for you all growing up in your house? No. no, my parents are uninterested in food. They have many intellectual interests, but food is not one of them. My mom does not like to cook. Although for someone who doesn't like to cook, she makes an effort and, and does cook on a regular basis. And I think I did grow up eating food that was made at home. My mom just found it a chore and, and didn't have sort of any training And I also say there's an irony. My father's parents owned a restaurant on Long Island for a long time, but they weren't interested in food. It was just a a job they could do. And, um, you know, my dad even worked in it, but it's just like none of them are interested. So I'm sort of the example of the person who, from deprivation, ended up being very interested in it. Um, That's how I describe it. Right. But you are very interested in food. Yes, I am. And, and I, you know, what's interesting is I was, I was a picky eater as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that was always, you know, frowned upon. Although I realized now as a parent, my mother was incredibly patient and tried really hard to cater to my demands, That's nice. which I wouldn't do as a parent as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of that was that I had, you know, sensitive taste buds. And now that I've learned what certain foods should taste like and seasonal eating and all of that, it really changed my life. And actually when I went to university, it was a place that also had terrible food. And I wasn't really trained to cook for myself when I got there. And I studied abroad um, in Italy, my junior, this second part of my junior year. And that was sort of the epiphany because this was Italy in the early 1990s. So before internet and, um, you were fully immersed in the culture and I had to cook for myself. But of course, what a great place in Florence to, to do that. And the food was great. And I took a cooking class um, actually from an American expat who's now back in the States, but was offering classes there. And that was the kind of transformative moment of discovering food and being interested in it and realizing what, you know, particularly certain vegetables should or can taste like. Isn't it amazing when you, because I think that happened to me too. I enjoyed cooking, but very early on, I think in my 20s, I got hooked at, with, and I just couldn't almost get enough. I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about cooking and techniques and um, how to prepare certain foods and different foods. But yeah, I feel like you just, it almost bites you if you're into that kind of thing. And then you just take off from there. Well, and then I was lucky because one of my friends, who's now my wife, was from a very foodie family, and mm-hmm. that, and she's my Julia connection originally. And so then I ended up entering this, you know, completely immersive world of both people very interested, if not obsessed with food, who regularly prioritized fine dining as an experience. And, you know, my mother-in-law is a... a, a esteemed cooking teacher and you can't be around someone like that and not learn so that just was like you know even greater and now almost lifelong immersion i like it um our college cafeteria was called well it was called the dining commons i'm sure that's probably what they're called all over the place we referred to it as the dick the dining commons the dc it was 
Well, where I went, where I went, it was it was actually, and I think it's still called the Ratty for very. No, that's a terrible name. Well, it was a terrible place. It was terrible food. It was (laughs) ugly as hell. Right. It's shocking to me that it still exists as a building that's utilized. And I, I just, yeah, it's it's it was a notoriously bad Mm -hmm. um, experience that hopefully I'm told has evolved and has uh, changed dramatically, although it looks the same. I was there a few years ago. Um, picky eater. It's, I was a picky eater as well, but I also on my plate, none of the food could touch each other. So if it was mashed potatoes and peas, the peas and the mashed potatoes could not touch each other or I, I couldn't eat it. I was not hyper about that, but there were just certain things like I would not eat tomatoes or tomato sauce. Um, until I was an adult, even now when I eat them, my mom's eyes are like, wow. And she, I'll tell you something really gross. What I ate instead was Everyone else had spaghetti with tomato sauce on it, mm-hmm. and I had spaghetti with warmed up ketchup on it. No. <laughs> Which, of course, I would not eat now, right. but that was all I would eat. And then I would only, I would not eat salad mm-hmm. if it had, like, all different kinds of ingredients, which, of course, now is, like, the best kind of salad. I just mm-hmm. wanted plain lettuce, and I had, like, two or three dressings that I had to have. I wouldn't eat it without dressing, mm-hmm. and it had to be one of those three. Gotcha. And then on certain days, I just wasn't into it at all. For sure. No, I hear you there. Uh, what did you want to be growing up? Like, what was aspirations? I wanted to be an architect, actually. Hmm. Um, I started, I was always interested in design. I mean, I wasn't like a super artist, but I actually, from the age of 11, I had a mini drafting table in my bedroom. And I, I've i drawn, I still have them, hundreds of floor plans and elevations of houses. And that was my like hobby or thing that I did. And so I went all the way through university um, studying architecture and urban studies. That's what my degree's in. And I intended to go to graduate school in architecture. And I, and I applied and I got in and I decided to take a year off before going and just kind of make sure. And I worked for a developer in Washington, D.C., who did uh, who was a specialist in affordable housing. Mm. And in working for her, I realized that a lot of architects work at the behest of a developer. It's the developer who's saying, I want this style. I'm going to plan it this way. Mm -hmm. And until you get to like the Frank Gehry, you know, I am pay level and you have to have that level of talent. And that just really changed my view of like the people who are happy as architects have no, can't imagine doing anything else. And I could imagine doing other things. Oh, okay. And so I guess, how did you get into, um, this world of Hollywood and becoming a talent agent. How did that happen? Well, that's interesting because it was through the same person. So (laughs) this um, woman uh, who was amazing is called Marilyn Melconi and she's still working and she runs a company called Telesis Corporation and she's developed hundreds of units of affordable housing and Mm. was very involved in in desegregation uh, settlements. And so I work, it was fascinating and I really enjoyed it. But she'd worked for Lucasfilms on like a sort of, fluke for a short term. And so while I worked for her, I got to know a couple of people. And then at the same time, um, where I grew up in Kansas City, there's a group of people who work in Hollywood and and I knew them. And it just kind of one thing led to another. And I decided that I was going to go to business school instead of uh, for graduate school instead of architecture school. And wouldn't I like to do that in California, where it's much warmer than Washington in the winter. Mm -hmm. And if I moved there, got in state tuition for graduate school, 
over two years, I could just like check out Hollywood and have a good time. And then I go to business school and go back into real estate development or something like that. So, and that's basically from her and then this other family friend from Kansas City who was like, oh, you should do it. I'll introduce you to people. You'll get a job. Don't worry. Um, you should just try it. And I did. That's amazing. Break it down for me. You um, essentially find talent to star in certain films like so uh a f they'll hire you to say hey we this is what we're looking for how does that work well so i never did so it's a little bit confusing because the blanket term is a talent agent and anybody who does creative things can be talent right but in hollywood parlance a talent agent represents actors and actresses mm -hmm. and a literary agent represents writers filmmakers then there's other there's voiceover gotcha. agents there's below the line agents and the training is mostly the same in the sense that you apprentice with someone who has that specialty and that's basically still the way it's done you train under someone who already knows how to do it mm -hmm. there are a number of people that have law degrees who then do this but you don't really need one it can be helpful um but it's also an expensive way to do it yeah um so that, and so in that sense, if you're, you know, motivated and you can tolerate the sort of assistant track, which is, you know, long hours, a lot of expectation, sometimes dealing with very difficult people, you, you can enter the business because there's a very big open door if you can figure out the points of introduction because they churn through these people. You know, when I was an assistant, the desk next to me, you know, for the time I was there, I was only assistant for 10 months, which is very unusual. There were like seven people sitting at the desk next to me because they would find it overwhelming or quit or get fired. So, yeah. you know, it's not for the faint of heart, for sure. Okay. Wow. And so, I mean, I guess who, some of the most memorable people that you've worked with then in, as this, in this career? Well, certainly I was very fortunate to meet the director, Christopher Nolan, at a very young age. We were both children. So he's probably the most famous person, uh, particularly on the literary side that I work right. with, who's not an actor. Right. Um, and um, he he and I were introduced. I think I was already a junior agent, had just been promoted. And he had moved to L.A. and he um, had done his basically i think thesis film but he he and his now wife i don't think yeah they weren't married at the time but then girlfriend had shot this movie called following in college on i think super eight and it was in black and white and that was his calling card and i think i saw that even before i read the first draft of memento but um i mean i think i can take credit for selling memento the reality was it was pre-sold in that his friend Aaron Ryder, who's now a very veteran producer, um, had already decided and figured out a way to get it made for Chris. So they auditioned me, I passed the test, started representing Chris, was ready to like send this, you know, super complex, never before seen script out, thinking, oh my God, no one's gonna understand it, but boy, do I love it. And then the next day they're like, oh, you know, new market capital is gonna call you and make an offer. I'm like, what? And the rest is history. Amazing. You have to, it seems like, obviously, you have to have a lot of passion to do what you do because you're, you know, if there's a project or something coming your way, you have to really, really love it to 
convince other people to love it, right? No, and, and that's a huge thing that happens is that your ability to convey excitement, particularly genuine excitement, and know the ins and outs of mm -hmm. what you're selling is makes a big difference. People sense that. They can tell whether you're taking something out because it's an obligation versus something that you believe in. And I've been exceptionally lucky in my career where I've not, because sometimes you do have a job or a role where you you are in a position where you need to do that because you're beholden to someone else who's more senior than you who's saying this needs to get done. And, and that, is, I would say, is more common. I've been lucky in my past that I kind of chose by accident, that I've generally only been representing things that I love and, and, and don't, you know, I, I've been my own boss a lot. Even when I worked at this first agency, the way it was structured, it was a very flat structure. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a longer story, but <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's definitely true. Autonomy, you know, I mean, it makes, it's, I don't think everybody is as lucky as, as you to be able to have a career where like that you were picking projects that were passion projects, things that really meant a lot to you. And you're right. It makes a huge difference. If you're selling something and you're selling it with your heart and your soul, people pick up on that in a heartbeat. Well, and I always joke to people that I, I sell, you know, when people are trying to get their head around what is an agent or a manager in Hollywood do, and I jokingly always say, I sell really expensive things that nobody needs. <laughs> but, but, but I think that speaks to what you're talking about is if that is indeed what you're selling, you have to really believe in it mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to take a hundred no's and a hundred silly reactions and keep going. And, and you know, again, like I said, that's not for the faint of heart. You have to have that, not just creative passion, but belief in your clients. You need to represent people that you, you know, really believe in their talent. Mm -hmm. I I love that you said you have to hear a lot of no's because um, it after a while it can weigh on you a little bit when you're hearing no all the time. And then when you get that yes, it's just, it, to me, it's like that. then this one was meant to be, this project was meant to be, or if I'm getting no's on all of these requests for podcast interviews and I get a yes, um, it's like, then I'm supposed to interview this person. Awesome. So I love that you said that. No, no, I, I share that, you know, meant to be thing. But I, I always say too, like Hollywood is one of these jobs that on a great day when it goes well, when you get a yes, it's like amazing high. And then when on the regular days or the bad days, when you're going to know our project falls apart, you're like, what am I doing? Yeah. There are so much easier ways to make a living. So, but that, that kind of roller coaster is quite addictive though, too, because the highs are so thrilling. And there's also this, you know, it's a hard business because even when you get your first yes, there's like seven more mountains and seven more yeses you need before something gets to a screen. And even when it gets to a screen, then you have to get the audience to see it. Then you have to get the audience that sees it at first to like it. So there are so many kind of constant hurdles that, you know, it is very daunting. It, it's emotionally draining at times because even when you're winning, there's still a potential even more than a hurdle, like wave to knock you down that could come. Sure. Uh, Andre DeShields, uh, one of his rules, cardinal rules of of longevity was, I, I may butcher it, but he essentially said the top of a mountain is really 
the bottom of the next mountain. So keep climbing. And I love that idea that if it is something that's super passionate for you, keep going. No, I think I think that's great advice. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor. He is. Yeah, he said that was I think his an acceptance speech when he won a Tony. And he had three cardinal rules and I wrote them down. I looked them up and I wrote them down because I loved them so much. But yeah, I just love that idea of, of keep climbing. Let's talk about um, Julia Child and yeah. your, your connection. I read yeah. somewhere when I was looking, looking you up, stalking you on the internet, <laughs> um, you met her, right? No? Yeah, I, no, I knew Julia personally. I mean, we weren't best friends, but my... Still. my yeah, no, no. I mean, I have quite a close connection to her, maybe sort of one degree removed. So my mother-in-law, who's a food writer um, called Anne Willen, who was also the founder of La Grande Cooking School in mm-hmm. Paris, they were very close friends. Okay. And Anne was about um, 20 years younger than Julia. So it was, they were peers, but there was a mentor, mentee, mother, daughter element to it. And, you know, Julia and Paul were original investors in La Varenne. And Julia really promoted Anne's career. So they were, you know, certainly for Anne, they were lifelong friends. Mm. And then it coincided that my partner, Emma, and I had moved to Los Angeles and Julia was in Santa Barbara. And now that I know so much more about Julia and her life, I think this is so ironic. But Anne, you know, said to us, oh, Julia's lonely in Santa Barbara. Will you and Emma go up and see her? And of course, Julia was never, I think, lonely and always had people around her. But um, Julia had a close connection with my my wife because Anne met Julia in Boston in 1972 when she was pregnant with my wife. Mm. And so my wife was born in Boston, even though she hardly ever lived there, and then later went to boarding school in Massachusetts. So Julie, she grew up with Julia in her life and, and she grew up as someone that, you know, Julia was kind of an auntie to. Sure. So that was, a you know, it was a very, in that sense, a close connection via osmosis. But Em and I used to go up from L.A. when I was a film agent um, to visit Julia and, you know, just hang, you know, not all the time. I don't know. Once every few months we would go up and see her and have lunch and chat to her and stuff like that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I've been reading, I read her, uh, I think it's the autobiography I've read, but she just, she seemed like larger than life. Oh yeah. I mean, Julia, Julia is one of those people. I mean, this maybe seems like a strange comparison and I haven't actually, I don't think I've met him in person, but the way that Bill Clinton just has this aura that just, exudes warmth and you just feel their presence. Julia was like that. Like she always made a point. I mean, I remember the first time I met her in person, we had driven up from our apartment in LA and she was living um, in this retirement community in Santa Barbara and she opened the door and I'm like, oh my God, that's Julia Child in the flesh. And she was quite elderly at this point. And she's like, oh, hello Todd, I've heard so much about you. It's nice to meet you. And I'm just thinking, Julia Child knows my name? And Emma's late, like, this is more, my wife is like, oh, Stephanie, told, Stephanie Hirsch was her longtime assistant. She's like, Stephanie told her your name just before you came in. <laughs> but actually, I don't necessarily think that's true. So many people have that story. And um, Julia had just a genuine interest in everybody. 
She loved people and was, you know, and I think that's what came through in television. She just had this tremendous ability to connect with people. And it, it, it was genuine, I think. It wasn't an act. It wasn't even something she had to teach herself to be famous. It was just a wonderfully innate quality that was her. Yeah, for sure. How did the the gig at the foundation go? Uh, tell me that story. <clears throat> and I'm, excuse me, I'm referring to your role as executive director for the Julia Child Foundation. No, no, absolutely. Um, so I was living in Los Angeles um, for the second go round um, after I'd gone to business school in London and had worked in advertising for five years. And I just a few years before returned to Hollywood to, to be a manager and go back to being a creative person and working with clients and, and trying to be a producer. But I, I was started my own shingle from nothing after a five year hiatus. So it was with that is no one should do that. It is terrible advice. So it is not a model for anything, but it is what happened. And I was, you know, fortunate enough that I could do that. But um, so back to the connection. So my mother-in-law, Anne, when she ran the Paris cooking school, there was a period of time where she had to move back to the States and she hired, I think someone who'd been a trainee at the school to run it, a woman named Susie Davidson. So Susie had this close connection with, with my in-laws. Later down the road, and I think through that connection, Susie had met Julia and had worked for Julia for several years and quite a far in the past. But as a result, after Julia died, and Susie, you can, she's in the documentary that's coming out. Mm. Susie, in turn, because of that, you know, I think had to maintain a close relationship with Julia even when she didn't work with her anymore after Julia died and the foundation was started because Julia created the foundation. It was her master plan. It was established in 94. I think that's right. But she died in 2004 and it became operational in 2006. But it was based on something she mapped out. And Susie was the first director of it. And I think she was brought in to do that because of her close relationship and knowledge of Julia. And so in 2011, Susie had been doing it kind of part-time while she had a full-time other job. And mm -hmm. she was finding it really, it was becoming more and more demanding, especially after 2007 when the Julie and Julia movie came out, because that really kind of supercharged Julia's legacy and reminded everybody of it. Right. And, you know, certainly Meryl Streep can do that. And from that, there was a plan afoot for 2012, which would have been her 100th birthday, that her publisher, Knopf, was planning a sort of centennial event called the JC100. And Susie felt like that was going to further supercharge things. And there were a lot of things to deal with and that she wanted some help. And so she rung me up and said, hey, do you know anyone who can do this? And I was like, well, actually, Susie, bizarrely, I have all these disparate things I've done that were bad ideas, of, were not a good, safe career track, all come together and what you need. And there are not that many people who've worked in Hollywood, knew Julia, worked with book publishing, know the food world and cookbooks, and worked in advertising and marketing and PR. So I'd love to help you, but we've just decided to move to London. And so I don't, you know, obviously I don't think you want someone in London. So I'll ask around. And Susie was sort of like, not so fast, Todd. <laughs> She's like, we run the foundation remotely. And while it's headquartered in Santa Barbara, 
I work, you know, at the time she was living in Arizona and her assistant was living in New Jersey. The trustees were all in different places. She's like, we're already virtual. What if we just bring you on as a consultant and we'll see how it goes. And that was 2012. And so I moved and, and I had no idea that Susie's game plan, although she still claims it was not in her mind, was was to retire. So within a year or so, she maybe it was two, I can't quite remember. She wanted to step down and, you know, recommended that I replace her. So that that's how I ended up with the job. That's awesome. I mean, just when you were describing that, um, it sounds like you were the perfect person actually for that job. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I, I, I might be stuck with it forever because there, it, it's a really unique combination of, of skills. I think we're moving to a point where it's getting harder and harder to have people who had a really personal relationship with Julia. But at the time that I joined, everybody involved with the foundation did. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we tried to maintain that um, as, as much as we can, although we're cognizant that over time that becomes harder and harder and less either maybe practical or warranted. But I think more importantly, I think you could easily do the job if you have the combination of marketing skills that I have and intellectual property. Those are the two things that really come into play in in, in running the foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think probably having gone to business school also was helpful in terms of the just having a little bit more of a skill set and basis to like run a a very small organization. Sure. Does it seem like, to me, it seems like um, Julia Child has kind of exploded in the last few years. I just feel like, I don't know if more people are learning about her. I mean, does it seem like that to you or or maybe it's just me that I'm more interested in her? Well, well, I'm thrilled to hear that because that's certainly one of the purposes of the foundation. So if, if that is true, then yeah, we've been, we've been doing our job. So thank you very much. Job done. Yay. I'll pat myself on the back. As so you should. I, I think, you know, there's been a proactive effort. You know, the trustees decided years ago, because Julia gave them a lot of freedom. She put all of her assets in this foundation, but then she said her goal with the foundation was to support gastronomy and the culinary arts. So she wanted, after her death, all the things that she advocated for to make the food world a more professional, a more developed, a more delicious, a more sustainable place to carry on. She didn't see it through a personal lens. And she, you know, had really no lasting idea of how much her story would have meaning and resonance for future generations. But she foresaw all of that. And so we have taken, but they go hand in hand, right? So for us to, you know, have, the the foundation is funded by royalties from her work. So they need to keep selling for us to have, um, because we're not a fundraising organization, it's a private charity. And so one way to do that is to, to continue to make her legacy and her story and thus her work, you know, relevant to, existing audiences and new audiences. Mm -hmm. And through the foundation, do you get to, obviously, you you pick and choose essentially who you are giving back to and and supporting? Yeah, we have, so we give about a quarter million dollars in grants away annually, which is really fun. I think there's nothing better than giving worthwhile organizations money. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. 
but you know we have criteria um, through the way the foundation is structured. We have to give the money to a nonprofit, so it has to be a five hundred one c three. And then through our own set of you know interpreting Julia's wishes, we only give money to things in the fields of uh, gastronomy and the culinary arts. So while hunger is often connected or hunger relief to the food world and food charities like No Kid Hungry. That isn't our mission. And we've realized that the kind of things that we support in the development of whether it's professional training to be a chef or to be a food writer or to research culinary history or um, food media that is based in something substantive, there are very few organizations that do that. And we're not 100% sure because we can't do an audit, but we're not aware of another one that does what we do. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we feel quite strongly of sticking to this lane um, because if we're not doing it, we're not sure what happens. And if you permit me, I'll give you one example that I'm really proud of and thrilled about. We were approached by a, a, a quarterly publication called the Oxford American um, which originally the Oxford name comes from the University of Mississippi in Oxford, but it, it's not affiliated anymore. And it's, they call themselves the New Yorker of the South. It's essentially a literary publication. You know, it's pretty highbrow. It's got lots of words in it and they cover everything, you know, arts, culture, music, they have a famed music issue. And I don't think they always have it, but they do food issues and they've always had a, a food related column. And they approached, and they're a nonprofit. So, you you, you know, they sell advertising in the magazine and um, you can get a subscription, but they're still a nonprofit. And they approached us to fund food writing. And, you know, our grants are not huge. I would say our average grant is $10,000. And, um, but they have produced just amazing work with not a lot of money, both in terms of writing and particularly these videos that they're like short films about Southern food and Southern food ways that have been made by a really amazingly diverse set of filmmakers. And um, I encourage you, it's oxfordamerican.org, you can watch them, they're terrific. And we're so pleased and amazed to see what that's been able to produce and contribute to the dialogue and conversation in food media. How awesome. Yeah, it's very gratifying for sure. I'm sure. Um, I just want to check one thing really quick. Uh, but I wanted to say how how great that, you know, like you said, giving away money to to these organizations. So fun. Right? I mean, that's just, that's incredible. Um, you also host the podcast Inside Julia's Kitchen. <laughs> I do. How fun. It is fun. I mean, the best part about it is to just dream up like, who do we want to talk to you? And, you know, as you know, it gives you this platform to make overtures. And, you know, I love, love the in- introductions we've been able to do. And um, mm-hmm. it's been a great learning experience too. I certainly was not born a podcaster and mm-hmm. had never thought about doing it. And um, it really came about as an, an additional way to raise awareness, both for what the foundation is and what we do, but also to, I mean, the idea behind it is called Inside Julia's Kitchen. It's on Heritage Radio Network, and you can find it wherever podcasts are distributed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's all, It's also on our website on juliachildfoundation.org. 
But we've really found that it just creates this great way to extend Julia's legacy. Mm -hmm. Like that's the concept, which is what did Julia do? Well, she brought all kinds of amazing people into her kitchen and she told everybody else about it. So that's what we do, except via podcast. Yeah. No kitchen involved. Right. Um, And then everybody shares a Julia moment, right? They do. We came, I think originally we were also trying to, you know, talk about Julia's legacy. And I think we just realized so many people have a Julia story or a connection to Julia. And that's always been a favorite thing that people both want to share and tell and have. And, you know, we tried it out at the beginning to be like, well, we'll try it and see what it works. And then, you know, the feedback was always like, oh, that's my favorite part. And mm. our episodes where we do for her, now we're doing these birthday recap episodes where we pick the ones that we thought were either most touching or most surprising or most impactful. And we assemble them in those episodes, even though they're essentially a rerun because <laughs> we've already had them in one episode, but they're at the end. So I think sometimes they may get overlooked or lost if someone doesn't end up listening to the whole mm-hmm. thing. So we bring them back and those episodes are very popular. How fun. Uh, is there any uh, Julia moment that sticks out to you that someone has shared with you? Yeah, I have to say the most moving one that was also the most surprising was actually connected to Oxford American was mm-hmm. they had um, their last food issue was guest edited by a writer called Alice Randall, who's also a professor at Vanderbilt. And um, Alice, we had her on because she'd edited the food issue and to talk about it. And this was very much in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement and and George Floyd's death, it Mm -hmm. was very close proximity to that. So it was spring of of last year, I think. No, where are we? Must be spring of this year, Um, was when the the issue came out. And her Julia moment was, I just had no idea that she basically had met Julia as a student in Cambridge. And when she went to Harvard, and Julia had, had she called Julia up and asked her to like um, supervise a, a independent study project that she was doing. And Julia agreed to have this young black woman, you know, be mentored essentially by her. They had no affiliation. She had no, Julia had no reason to do it. There was no sure. society introduction. And that uh, this had just been incredibly meaningful to Alice. And I thought the most powerful thing Alice said there were a lot of things she said, so it, it's a rather long one, and you can listen to it, um, was that Julia told her she could be a writer, and Julia gave her permission to pursue what, to her, particularly as a young African-American woman, was not something other people were just saying, oh, yeah, sure, you can do it. Why not? And that having someone of Julia's stature tell her that that was possible, give her permission, endorse her was incredibly meaningful. And the fact that she's gone on to be a celebrated writer, and now her daughter is a celebrated writer and poet, her daughter's um, called Caroline Randall Williams. It was just amazing to be like that Julia had a connection to that. And I'll give you another example. It wasn't the best Julia moment, but we had um, the um, barbecue chef and restaurateur Rodney Scott on because he had a new book out and he's become very successful down particularly in Alabama and uh, Georgia and um, the first thought was like oh well I don't know if Rodney who you know grew up in a as a poor kid in a very small rural town and was cooking in the pit at 11 would have a Julia Child connection 
I'm like, okay, well, you don't have your Julia moment doesn't have to be about when I met Julia. It could even be about someone else who inspired you in your career. So I was all prepared for that. But when I sat down and did the research, actually, he everybody has a Julia connection because the writer John T. Edge, who wrote for the Oxford American, who also was one of the founders of the Southern Foodways Alliance. He was the one who first wrote about Scott's barbecue and drew attention to it in the New York Times. And of course, John T. Edge was encouraged to, to start the Southern Foodways Alliance or pursue it by Julia Child. So from Rodney Scott to John T. Edge to Julia Child was an absolute direct line. Man, it's the seven degrees of <laughs> Julia Child. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I don't, I, I have a connection with her. I feel like just based on my research of her, she's taught me things through the things that she said and watching her on TV and, and reading about, uh, I had a moment with Sarah Moulton actually, um, in the book, Julia basically said, you know, she messed up on something and the bottom line was never apologize, never explain. Yeah, and that hit me. And I asked Sarah Moulton her best advice, which is my one of my final three questions. And she said that was it. Never apologize, never explain. And it's actually in her kitchen. And I just love that. That's my connection with this, my idol, this woman that I've never met before. But I, I love that, that you didn't necessarily have to meet her to have that moment. No, exactly. That's your Julia moment. And I think that's what has made her legacy so powerful is that she could connect and teach through all these things she said and advised. And, you know, we're very happy we worked with Kanoff to put a compendium of her quotes and actually the first com official compendium of her quotes that includes things like that, because I think people have realized how much wit and witticism mm -hmm. Julia offered. And she usually offered that in interviews. It doesn't exist uh, in within the context of the shows. It was things she said when she made public appearances. Sometimes it was things she wrote, but she was just very wise. And I think the other thing that you really bring up about never apologize, A, it's probably a good advice in general, but it's such a simple phrase, but it's so empowering. And I think it's particularly empowering to women who are prone to apologizing just because they've been brought up to be polite and you know, I find myself particularly living in the British apologize for literally everything. And so to remind yourself that like, no, you should be apologizing when it's necessary. You've done something wrong, but not for everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's there's all these things about Julia's advice that just are loaded with empowerment messages. Mm, for sure. Um yeah, I love that. I your soap. I was about to say preach because women do apologize for everything. I will start an email with the words, "I'm sorry to bother you, but," and I've had to stop doing that. It's so ridiculous. But you're right. We we apologize a lot. No, it's and I do it. You know, I do think women tend to do it more, and men do it a lot less or feel mm -hmm. less inclined. But I find I'm doing it too. I'm like, wait. No, look at your, e this is advice to everyone. Look at your email. If you're saying sorry, ask yourself, are you sorry? Yeah. And why should you be sorry? What are you sorry for? Exactly. Exactly. I do have um, people who eat, people who love to eat are always the best people. Right. It's right there next to all my cookbooks. So she's, that's yes. my inspiration. No, I mean, that, 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 that's the title of the book of quotes for mm -hmm. sure. And for good reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little bit clubby in the sense that, there's a certain, you know, exclusionary thing. Like, I, my parents haven't been offended by that, but I don't think they would be 
you know, I think they're the best people, but they're probably not part of that club. But, I, you know, it says a lot about people who are interested in food and, and wine and other beverages and things. They just they have a certain affinity for one another and they have a great time together. It's a those, good club to join. I, I agree. I'm in the club um, and there are <laughs> those are the people I gravitate towards, I find. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Todd, I'm going to wrap up a little bit. Um, I do want to say uh, subscribe yeah. to Inside Julia's Kitchen on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And then also yes. the website, right? You can find the link to the website on the website. Yeah. On juliachildfoundation.com, there's a podcast navigation and you can actually listen to episodes there. You can listen to them on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, it's heritageradionetwork.org, but it's available. It's easy to find on Apple or Stitcher or Spotify. Beautiful. Well, we made Please it do. about. We'd we, love to have you listen. Yes, absolutely. We made it about forty-five minutes before my dog started barking, so that's not bad. Not bad at all. Um, we're gonna wrap up a little bit and get to the final three. Um, but I okay. do, I do want to say, keep up the good work, man. I love, I love what you guys are doing. The foundation. It just, cool. it's just amazing. It's incredible. Well, thank you. It's, it's definitely a very fun job. I bet in that. Yeah, it's like, it's a pleasure to do and, and uh, I enjoy doing it for sure. Oh, I, I can tell. I can absolutely tell. <laughs> okay, um, final three, best advice you've ever been given. Okay, I have written these down so because I yes. want to do it, do it well. I always, well, Julia always said, prepare, 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 mm -hmm. and then you let it go. But, you know, I think people thought Julia did everything off the cuff a lot and she absolutely did not. She was a super thorough preparer mm. but what made her a great presenter was she was prepared for what she prepared not to work out and to pivot but i think you can pivot a lot better on the fly if you have prepared and that's a great lesson from julia wow i, I didn't even I, I knew the prepare 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 part but the let it go that's that's the key right that's the key. Yeah. And it, it is a hard one, especially if you're like quite organized in a type, you're like, no, this is not what I meant to do. But that was, that was almost like Julia's secret was she was very prepared, but she knew how to just be like, Oh, well, we're going this way now. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So that's good. The, the, the best advice I was ever given did not come from Julia. And I can't even remember the name of the person that gave it to me. But it does relate, and so I'm glad we talked about me being an agent and a manager, <laughs> because it involves deal-making. And the best advice I was ever given was, never make an offer you're not embarrassed to make. Ooh, okay. That's good. Deliberate double negative. Deliberate double negative. And so what it means is, if you're in a negotiation for whatever, buying a house, you know, trying to barter with somebody for someone or going for a job or making a, a contract. If you're trying to say, oh, do I ask for $100 or 200? And if you're like, I'm just going to ask for 100 because that seems reasonable, that means you're not asking for enough. Because if you're really comfortable with your offer, then you're probably under undervaluing it. And mm. the same goes in reverse. If you're offered something and you're like, Oh yeah, sure. You probably should rethink it and be like, mm, that's probably not enough if I'm totally fine with it. That's good. But advice. that also talks about situations when you have imperfect information. So I've done a lot of negotiating in my career and usually you're dealing with imperfect information. You don't know how much the other side really has to offer. You don't know how much they have to give. And you really have to look at 
you know, negotiating to me is all about leverage. And you can, the more leverage you have, the more bold you can be. So it still needs to be relative. Yeah. But in general, if you're really comfortable with what you've just written in an email, <laughs> you probably should rethink that and, and stretch a little bit further. The worst that can happen is you get a no you get and a you no. go back to something. You get a no and you move on. Different, d- different path for sure. Okay, Todd Shulkin, what's your happy place? The beach. I love mm. the beach. Any any particular beach or just the beach? Well, I love being on the beach in California. Mm. Um, my parents go to the Yucatan in Mexico. Those beaches are beautiful. Um, I actually like the Outer Banks too. There's just something really peaceful, and the water's always in the summer, the right temperature. So, mm. but um, I. I'm not that picky. <laughs> right. Yeah. I grew up in South Carolina, so we were big fans of Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head and all that. And now I live in Oregon and the Oregon coast may just be one of the most beautiful places to me. So I feel you there. Yeah. Okay. Um, in all things food and drink, what do you crave, sir? So I have actually in, in the cravings and what I really like is really embarrassingly pedestrian. I love it. It's not. Yeah. Like, um, I really like Philly cream cheese, like the original, not the, the stuff that mm-hmm. comes in this silver foil bar. Like I can eat that plain. I connected to that a good like bagel and locks with all the trimmings. Delicious. Mm-hmm. And um, I love pizza. Mm-hmm. Pretty much any kind um uh is i'll go i mean you know i can be a connoisseur of pizza and have my favorite local place that's like slow food and stuff Mm -hmm. but you know i'll eat a frozen pizza too with the right toppings amen and then i can't let it go because we back to the beginning certainly kansas city barbecue is a is a favorite awesome not that i can get it in Alaska. right right yeah um i grew up with south carolina barbecue so yeah and I am sure we'd never convince each other that nope. our, our, ours is better, right? <laughs> <laughs> is because at Carolina barbecue, ours was vinegar based. The sauce was vinegar based. Kansas is it's tomato based. Tomato yeah. based. Okay. It's sweeter, and yeah, it's definitely not vinegar based. Right. And um, yeah, Rodney Scott is from South Carolina, isn't he? I. Hmm. Yes. So um, I actually wrote his name down because I'm going to do uh, a little bit more research on Rodney Scott. But um, when my grandmother would make the barbecue sauce, the hogs out back, you know, barbecuing, she would make the the barbecue sauce. The entire house would smell like vinegar to the point where you would walk in and it's, you know, pungent. It's very, very vinegary. So. No, actually, I think South Carolina barbecue in Kansas City is really different also because in Kansas City is not a very pork-based diet. It's yes. very uh, beef-based. So, like, the key, like, my favorite place in the world that I grew up is Arthur Bryant's in downtown Kansas City or east of downtown. And to me, their best thing is their burnt ends and their, their brisket that they do. The burnt ends are the best. And their sauce, it's not particularly sweet, but it it it, it is on the sweeter side and and is tomato based, I'm pretty sure. Um, Awesome. Um, And then the drink side after a long day, is it, is it wine? Is it a margarita? Is it chocolate milk? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not chocolate milk. Um, Well, living in London, I drink a lot of tea in the evening, Mm -hmm. but I, but I, I definitely, you know, love wine and um, I like beer too. I'm not one of those people who has like, one drink or right. the one thing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quite 
uh, versatile. But during the, the pandemic, I'll give a shout out to David Lebovitz's book, Drinking French, which um, I had on the podcast on Inside Julia's Kitchen and had gotten, uh, I'd gotten just a preview copy of his book, but then I ordered the real thing because I just thought it was such a fantastic combination of great drink recipes, as well as like the backstory on like, what is vermouth and where does it come from? Yeah. And how was it invented? And the other interesting thing that I never knew or thought about is drinks in France are very connected to America because a lot mm. of what is in a bar, even that are French things, goes back to certain things that happened during World War II to help soldiers and stuff. It seems like you know that. And I didn't know that. And so it, it, it provides us also unique Franco-American kind of linkage that, yeah. that I just had never thought about. So I actually wasn't aware of that. So that's pretty cool. I like a good cocktail. So. Same. Yeah. I, I enjoy I enjoy a good cocktail with ingredients that I've never heard before. Well, you should. One of the things David introduced is Suze, which is a liqueur that I'd never heard of, which is sort of citrusy. And um, but it kind of it goes well. It's not really I don't love it on its own, but it kind mm -hmm. of adds something to a gin and tonic. Um, and there's also something called Lillet and just yes. the amount of, you know, obscure liqueurs that you could rediscover as, you know, ha I like a Cure Royale. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of China China? No, okay. Not. Yeah, it's it's um it's a liqueur and one of my favorite cocktails, super herbaceous, orangey, um like a digestive kind of you know aperitif. It's really really good. I, I I'm probably butchering the description of it, but china china, it's quite tasty. I'll check it out. Um, you have been so much fun. Thank you for your time today uh, chatting with me. And I encourage everyone to just check out the work that the Julia Child Foundation is doing. You guys are doing incredibly important work in the culinary world. And um, I, I, it definitely doesn't go unnoticed with me. But also check out the podcast Inside Julia's Kitchen one more time. Subscribe to it on your favorite podcast platform. Todd Shulkin, you have been a blast. And I'm just excited to, uh, I was very excited to hear your connection to, to Julia Child. And I really do appreciate all the work the foundation's doing. Well, Trish, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me to come on and, and talk. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Close. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More and Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.